Scripture reading this morning will be taken from Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. Micah 6, 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Imagine with me, you're someone who has been hurt, you've been wounded physically, you are dying slowly. You've never actually been to a hospital before except for the day you were born, but you know it's a place you can go. It's a place where you can find this help that you need to have your wound healed, and you can be saved. Your life can be saved there. So you find your way through the streets to a hospital. But when you get there, you see the parking lot is empty. All the lights are off. And when you go to check, the doors are locked. So you pound on the door and you say, let me in. I need help. And eventually someone does come to the door and they let you in. And you're shocked to see that there's maybe one or two nurses on duty and a secretary. And that's it. There's, there's no one there to truly help you. You expected a hospital full of people to help you with your wound. And you go there to find next to no one. Now imagine you're someone who has wounded their soul. You're hurt and you're in need of help and you don't know where to turn. You haven't been to church before, except for the time your mother made you dress up for Easter. And, and you, you know, even though you've never been there, that it's a place where you can go to find help. You know it is a place where you can be saved and someone can heal this wound of yours. So you find your way through the streets of this church building and you're shocked to see an empty parking lot. The lights are off and the doors are locked. Eventually, someone does let you in. And you see a handful of staff members at best. In the building. In both of these scenarios, you might think, have I come to the wrong place? Is this where I'm supposed to be? I thought this was somewhere I could go to get help. Where is everybody? This is what the American church looks like. Empty. We all gather together on Sunday to worship the Lord. And then we go home and we stay there. You know, the, the ministers are typically in the church building, and they can help people for sure. But for the most part, our buildings are empty all across America. And if someone's looking for help and expecting a church to help them, to lead them to God, I'm almost scared to, to ask what they'll find. There's 168 hours in a week. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. 168 hours. 
If I'm being really generous, I could say that every single person in a church across America spends eight hours at church. And that's being really generous. Realistically, it's more like four, maybe five. You know, two hours if you show up for worship and class on Sunday. Maybe another hour in the Sunday evening for worship or a small group. And then maybe another hour on a Wednesday night. And then maybe throw in another hour or two for some kind of event you might have throughout the week. Well, eight hours is less than 5% of your week. Less than 5% of your week is spent in the church. And that's not to say that everything we do has to physically be in the church building. But I think it would be naive to expect every person to be doing church things outside of the church. I would hope that we all do those things. But I think it'd be naive to expect it from everyone. If we look at the breakdown of your week, you've got 168 hours. You spend maybe 40 hours at work or school. And let's be really generous and say maybe you spend another 40 hours with your family. I wish I knew a family that spent as much time together as they spent at work in the week. But let's be generous and say you will spend another 40 hours with your family and we'll throw in maybe eight hours to allow for you to drive to and from work and to and from church and wherever else you may go throughout the week. And let's be really, really generous and say you all get eight hours of sleep every night. That's 56 hours if you sleep eight hours every night. That leaves a full 24 hours left in your week to fill. A whole day left completely empty, assuming you actually do all these things I just listed. What are you doing with that 24 hours? Now, if we're a little more realistic, you know, you work 40 hours a week, and we'll still be pretty generous and say 20 hours with your family, half the amount of time you spend at work. And I still think that's pretty generous. We'll still say eight hours to commute, I don't know what the average is per week, but it's probably less than that, depending on where in the country you live. Seven hours of sleep at night, that's 40, 49 hours a week. The average American gets less than seven hours, but we'll say seven. That leaves 51 hours left in your week. That's more than two full days. If we're being realistic, and even still a little generous, more than two full days left in your week that are completely empty. How much of those hours are you spending either at church or doing church things? You know, you don't have to be in the church building to evangelize. And I'm not going to sit here and say that you need to spend specifically more time in the church building. But we ought to be about our Father's business in our daily lives. 51 hours is a lot. That's a lot of time. Let me reread for you the, uh, the scripture reading we had this morning. Micah 6, verses 6 through 8, says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? 
Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? I'm supposed to be talking about giving this morning. I don't, I don't know that I've brought up money yet. And I don't know that I really will. Because the church of the day does not need your money. The American church has plenty of money. You know, there might be some small congregations around that could use a little more. But for the most part, the American church is extremely wealthy. What the church of today needs is your time. What the church of today needs is you and me. It needs us to give our time to God instead of using it selfishly. Of those 51 extra hours, how many of those do you think the average American spends in front of the TV? I don't know. I didn't look it up. But if I had to guess, it's probably a pretty big fraction. Maybe even most of that 51 hours. And that's still assuming, you know, these people are spending 20 hours a week with their family. I don't think most people do that. It would be great if they did. Think of how strong our Christian families would be if we spent that much time together. It would be amazing. Phenomenal. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? You know, that, that section of that verse really sh- stuck out to me. Because I don't think any of us would really do that. I don't know if I could do that. I don't have any children, but I still can't even imagine myself giving up my firstborn for God. And yet that's what Abraham was going to do, and that's what God did do for us. He did give his firstborn for our transgression because he knew that we couldn't give ours because we're not willing to give that much. We're not. Ephesians 5 Verses 15 and 16 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. What on earth does that mean? The days are evil. The times are evil. We live in evil times. We live in a fallen world that is trying to eat up our time and tell us how we should spend it. It's telling us, do what you want to do, have fun, party. That's what the world tells us to do. That's how the world tells us to spend our time, but God calls us to spend our time wisely, to make the best use of it. I'm kind of latching on to this 51 hours, or, or 24 hours if you spend 40 hours with your family. How much of that 51 hours... Are you willing to spend on God and not on yourself? I'm sad to say that for myself, it's not very many. Historically in my life, the vast majority of my hours have been spent on myself rather than on God. 
The week before last, as I was preparing this lesson, you know, I wanted to have it, at least for the most part, completed before going to camp, because I knew I'd be really tired afterwards and really tired during. Timothy was in the office, and he made this comment to me. He said, it's not about what you are giving, it's about what you are not giving. It's not about what you are giving, it's about what you are not giving. What are you not giving to God? Let me put this another way. What are you holding back for yourself? What amount of your time, your money, yourself, what are you holding back for yourself? If we put it another way, a little more harsh way perhaps, what are you withholding from God? Because if we're honest with ourselves, our money and our time already belongs to him, and we're selfishly grasping it from his hand and saying, it's mine, I'm going to spend it how I want. What are we withholding from God? Who wants to ask that question of themselves? I don't, because I'm scared what the answer will be. How much am I holding back from God? Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17 reads, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God does not need us to sacrifice our money for him. He does not need money. He is the creator of the universe. He can do whatever he wants. And when we talk about giving, that's all we focus on is the money part. You know, give cheerfully, give generously, give your 10%. That's not in the Bible, 10%. I, I've never read that. You know, people say, oh, well, the Israelites, they gave 10%. That's what the tithe was. Well, they, they had multiple tithes, actually. So in total, they gave closer to like 30%. Because it was 10% of this and 10% of that plus a little extra over here. And then we know when they asked to make the temple, they gave pretty much everything. You know, they were giving their gold to smelt down and, and make these pillars and lay everything with gold. They were giving a whole lot more than 10%, and yet that's like the pinnacle of Christianity. If I give 10%, whew, I'm a great Christian because I've given my 10%. I'm pretty awesome. I'm pretty cool. This verse in Psalm 51, that's what we're looking at today. We're not supposed to just give our stuff. God wants our hearts. He wants us. He wants our bodies as this living sacrifice. That was the whole problem with the Pharisees in the New Testament. They were doing God's commandments. That was their problem. Problem was, that's all they were doing. They were just doing God's commandments. Nothing else. Isaiah 23, 13, or 29, 13. I'm sorry. It says, And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. The Pharisees were honoring God outwardly. Everyone could see 
how much they were serving God, but their hearts were going in another direction. You know, that's what repentance is described as a U-turn. You're walking one way, and you make a full 180 turn and walk back towards God. The problem is, so often, our bodies turn, but our hearts don't. Our hearts keep walking that way, and our body is vainly walking towards God, leaving our hearts behind. Romans 12.1 has kind of been a theme verse for this series. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. A living sacrifice. Money is not alive, church. Money is not alive. Giving your money is not a living sacrifice. Yes, we are commanded to give of our physical possessions to support the church because we've got to keep the lights on and the air conditioning running and keep things comfortable, right? Pay our ministers, support missionaries. These are all very important things, and yet we're, we're spending all this time spending money to keep the bills up so that we can use the building less than 5% of the time. Who wants to pay bills on a house you're not living in? I don't. Kind of stinks, right? It's a waste of money. The church of the day is wasting its money. We're wasting our money keeping air conditioning running in a building that's not in use. That's what the American church is doing all across America. Most churches, if you walk in 10 a.m. on a Monday morning, you'll find two or three people there, if that. This building can hold more than two or three people, I, I think. Most church buildings can. God wants all of us. He doesn't want us just to sacrifice for him. He wants to sacrifice ourselves for him. He doesn't want us to sacrifice of ourself. He wants to sacrifice ourselves. Not of ourselves, ourselves. Not our possessions, not what we have, but our personal time, our personal effort has to be given to God. That's what he's called us to do. This week at camp at SNBC, the theme was whatever it takes. And we talked about doing whatever it takes in lots of different areas doing whatever it takes and being bold in our preaching, being bold when we face opposition, doing whatever it takes to preach the good news and bring salvation to others, doing whatever it takes to confront our sin and to seek forgiveness and to forgive others, doing whatever it takes because God gave his son and did whatever it took to save us. Going back to Micah 6. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? The fact of the matter is, your firstborn's not worth your transgression. It's not worth it. But God's firstborn was worth all of our transgressions. And yet, we're not willing to give even a little of our time back. 
At least not always. We might do things every once in a while, but then we retreat back into our shells and spend our time doing what we want to do. As I said, the theme for camp was whatever it takes. So I want to ask you, are you doing whatever it takes to give yourself to God? Are you doing whatever it takes to give something back? Or are you doing just enough? Are you doing the bare minimum? I kind of thought of a little play on words. It might not make sense to you, but it makes sense to me, so I'm going to say it anyways. Just enough is never enough. But never enough is just enough. And what that means is, if you're doing just enough, it's never going to be enough. You're not going to make it if you're doing just enough. But if you're doing everything you can and you understand that everything you can is never going to be enough, then you might just be doing enough. Just maybe. So just enough is never enough, but never enough is just enough. Say that five times fast. How can you expect God to say to you when the judgment comes, well done, my good and faithful servant, but all you did was just enough. All you did was the bare minimum. We don't usually congratulate people who do the bare minimum. You're not going to be super happy if the garbage man comes he takes your trash, but he leaves your trash can tipped over in the street, in the way, so you have to move it before you pull in your driveway. You're not going to be super happy about that. Because you know what? He did the bare minimum. He took out the trash. That's his job description. But you know, if he sets your can upright, closes the lid, because it's raining today in this scenario, it's raining and you don't want your trash can to fill with water then it's going to be a lot heavier, and you've got to dump that out. So he closes the lid. He sets it upright. He went just the slightest bit above and beyond. And so you might even think in your head, wow, I'm glad he did that. But if he did just the bare minimum, you're not going to congratulate that. No way. You don't congratulate people on their job well done if it wasn't really a job well done, right? So if we're doing the bare minimum, and then we say, I can't wait to go to heaven and hear God say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You did good. The Bible tells us that there's many who are going to call and say, Lord, Lord, and Jesus is going to say, I don't know you. I don't know that a lot of people really understand the implications of that. That means many people are going to genuinely believe that they did what it took and that they're going to go to heaven and they're going to get there and find out they didn't make the cut because they did the bare minimum or they simply just believed and didn't do anything more. It's a sad thing. The strong delusion 
that has fallen over the church of today that believes that they can do the bare minimum and get by. Are you ready to do whatever it takes to serve Jesus? Are you ready for that? Have you been baptized? That's a great start. It's a proclamation. That's giving your life. It's a statement saying, I'm giving my life to Jesus. It's a public proclamation. It is a necessary thing for your salvation to say, I'm going to give my life to Christ through baptism. Are you willing to give everything you have for Jesus? You know, we read the New Testament and we see these Christians literally selling every possession they have and laying the money down at Jesus' feet and the apostles' feet. I'm sorry. I don't know if I've ever met someone who sold their house and gave it to the church. Not once in my life. Short as my life may be, I've never met someone who's done that. And yet that's, that's the norm in the New Testament. That's the standard. That's the bare minimum. That's what we see. And it's not about the money. It's not about the money, church. Because if it was about the money, then it would have been okay for Ananias and Sapphira to hold back a little for themselves if it was about the money. It's their money. Peter says as much, you know, wasn't it yours before you gave it? You didn't have to lie. You could have just said, here's half. I'm giving half. And that would have been fine. But instead they tried to lie about it because they thought it was about the money. They wanted other people to think that they really gave everything. You see, if it was about the money then Jesus would have praised the rich and not the widow with the two small copper coins if it was really about the money. Because in the grand scheme of things, the rich really did give more. But when it came to their hearts, the widow gave more because she gave everything she had and trusted God to still provide for her. It's not about the money. I think sometimes we try to place a price on our eternity. We say, if I give my 10% every year to the church, that's going to pay the price for my eternity. Well, eternity is an infinite number of years. I don't know how many of you understand that. It's a difficult thing to grasp. But eternity is infinity. It's forever. I was trying to figure out planning for this, you know, what, what is the actual money cost of one year of a person's life? How much does one year cost? And not, I'm not talking about salary, but how much is a year worth? The recommended amount of money to be given to someone wrongfully committed of a crime is $50,000 per year in prison. $50,000 per year. It's a good amount of money. You know, you see these huge settlements paid to people who've been wrongly convicted. You know, $1.2 million. 
Crazy stuff. That doesn't come anywhere close to paying for your eternity. Because the only one who can pay that price is Jesus. His blood on the cross for our sins. That's the only thing that can pay that price. All we're asked to do is give a little bit back as a thanks. That's all we're asked to do, is to give generously to support the church, to support those in need, as a little bit of payback for what Christ did for us. Knowing that we're never going to measure up. In a moment, we're going to sing the song, Trust and Obey. It was one of my favorite songs growing up. Trust and obey, for there's no other way. We're good at the obey part. The Pharisees were really good at it. But sometimes I wonder how good we are at the trusting part. Do we trust God to provide for us? You know, we may say, if I give all my time to the church, I'm not going to have time to do the things I want to do. So I don't want to do that. I don't want to give my time up. It's my time. No, it's God's time. He gave you 168 hours a week. And he said, give me just a couple of those back. And sometimes we struggle to give more than four or five hours a week just to go to church. We struggle to give any more than that. And, you know, again, that's assuming you actually show up for every single service, stay the whole time, and maybe even stay a little bit afterwards for some fellowship, which none of us is going to complain about. We all like fellowship. That part's easy. How many of us actually give our time up for God? I'm going to ask you again, what are you withholding from God? What are you withholding from God? This morning, if you're ready to give whatever it takes to God, if you're ready to actually give your life as a living sacrifice to Him, to decide that your time is no longer your own and that God is your number one priority, if you're willing to make that statement, to make that confession, to be baptized, or maybe you already are baptized, you're already part of the church, but you say, I've not really been giving my time. I've been holding it back for myself. I need to stop and think and start giving back to God. 